suffering and death is a disruption. We can tend to live our lives thinking that death, disease, mental illness, friends moving away, relationships becoming estranged are a fact of life. That's just the way it is, Justin. And we can live our lives so often with this mentality and we forget that it's actually not true. Suffering is not the way it's supposed to be. Death is the great intruder, the great vandal of shalom and God's peace. Disease, brokenness, decay in our broken world, war, famine. These are not facts of life. And it's important for us to remember that as we're coming in and looking at this passage, we must acknowledge that when God created the world, He stepped back at His creation with His arms crossed and and said, this is good. And then when He created His crown jewel, men and women, image bearers of Him alone, He says, this is very good. There was no death. There was no corruption. There was no decay. There was no disease. For us to fully enter into the beauty, the majesty of John 11, we must begin with creation and now acknowledge that we live in a fallen world that is not the way it's supposed to be. How will Jesus face suffering? How do you face suffering? How do you face those things in life that you can't control or you just can't quite seem to get your hands around? See, I think if we look and see how Jesus enters into suffering enters into our suffering, even today. That will help us. That will encourage us to actually be able to enter into the suffering of the people in our family, into our marriages, into our offices, and even into the people in this community. So with that in mind, can we look at John chapter 11? It's a lengthy passage. It's a wonderful picture of Jesus entering into the suffering of his friends. John chapter 11, beginning in verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. And now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary 
came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, again, deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. And so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, You send your Holy Spirit to speak through the Scriptures, and I am a fallen and a broken man who has experienced the full weight of the fall just like every single person in this room. But by your grace and being put back together again, being prepared for glory, putting sin to death, believing the gospel more and more again, I pray that I would get out of the way and let the Holy Spirit speak through me, that we would hear again how Jesus faces suffering and that we might be encouraged. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a refugee ministry in Athens, Greece, that we've had a chance to partner with. And you see, in Athens, Greece, one of the great problems is people come from all over uh, Europe, and because their borders are open, families come seeking um, safety. Because the country that they're living in, they're undergoing religious persecution or ethnic cleansing or genocide or something awful. So they come to Athens, Greece. But they're only in Athens, Greece for a very short time. And they're on their way to another country of more permanence. And would you believe that in Athens, Greece, as all these people come from all over the world, mothers and fathers will leave their four-year-old children, leave their five-year-old children, to walk the streets of Athens, Greece, as mom and dad leave the country and go to another place. The best they can do is say, honey, you can't come with me. I I must leave. And this ministry that we've 
been able to partner with in Athens, Greece, is there. And they literally walk the streets looking for children behind dumpsters. They walk the streets urging people to come into their refugee shelters. And as, as the, the woman that led this ministry was sharing about this vision and, and, um, for refugees, and we had the privilege of rehabilitating her facility and her building and painting things and cleaning it up for these children, there was not a dry eye in the room. And she told the stories of sadness, but then the stories of hope, that even in the midst of that brokenness, even in the midst of children being left behind, there's a ministry there that's doing something about it, and yet we still wept. See, I had the privilege of knowing the end of the story, so to speak. There's a problem, there's brokenness, but thankfully, God by His grace is using this ministry. My fear is that in a similar way, we're going to come to a passage like John 11. And you are going to look and, and you know the end of the story. My fellow church people, people that have grown up in the church, you've heard Sunday school classes on John 11. You've heard it preached many times. You want to race to the end. You want to race to the tomb and see, and see Lazarus coming out. Can I invite you not to do that? but instead to actually enter into the narrative. Imagine yourself from Mary and Martha's vantage point where your brother is dying and there's only one person in the world that can do something about it. So can I invite you to enter into the suffering, enter into the open-endedness? Because I think only as we enter into the open-endedness of this narrative do we actually see how Jesus enters into our suffering. And so there's three things that I want to talk about as Jesus faces suffering this morning. I want you to see three things. I want you to see how he does it. He does it in three ways. Jesus enters into the suffering. Jesus responds to the suffering. And Jesus conquers the suffering. He enters in, he responds, and he conquers. Number one, Jesus enters into the suffering. How does he do this? What's remarkable about this passage, time did not allow me to read the entire chapter. I wish I could. But did you notice that Jesus hears, in, in John 11, verse 5, he hears that his dear friend Lazarus is not dead, but sick. And listen to what verse 5 says as he hears this sad news about his friend Lazarus. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister... And Lazarus. And so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, what did he do? He stayed. He remained. He waited two days longer in the place where he was. He heard that his friend was sick. He didn't do anything. He remained for two days. Why would he do that? Throughout this passage, we're learning that Jesus wants us to believe that he is God. He's not merely doing magic, magic tricks. He's not merely doing miracles and signs to impress us. He's performing everything that we might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is the resurrection and the life, that He even waits for His own timing. Jesus enters into suffering on His timetable. Do we need to hear that this morning? What suffering are we going through this morning? What difficulties? What head scratchers? What questions do we have? And we're like, Jesus, when are you going to enter in? God, when are you going to do something about this? He enters in on his timetable. And we learn why 
The whole point of him waiting in verse 15 of chapter 11, he says this to his disciples. He says, Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, disciples, I'm glad that I was not there with Lazarus, so that you may believe. But now let us go to him. Jesus loved Lazarus. He loved Mary. He loved Martha. He loved his disciples so much that he waited. He entered in on his timetable at just the right time. But Jesus heard of a need and he entered into the problem. We learn earlier on in chapter four, in chapter 10 that one of the reasons why Jesus is away from Mary and Martha and Lazarus is he is running for his life. He had been in danger, and now he is seeking safety. And he gets a memo. He gets a message. Your friend Lazarus needs you. He is sick. He is ill. And you know what Jesus does? Proverbially speaking, he goes back under the razor wire, back into danger, Back into harm's way, he drops everything to enter into the suffering of this man and his friends, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Before we move on to our second point, I think some of us this morning need to stop and let that hit you. Because our greatest fear in life is that Jesus doesn't really care about what you're going through this morning. Whether you are a non-Christian here this morning and you're curious about Christianity and a friend brought you, or you are a committed Christian, maybe you're a leader in the church, you're a Sunday school teacher, you're an elder or a deacon, all of us have things in our lives. And we doubt, does God really care about what I'm going through? This, thing, this, is, this seems so small. Does he really care about the individual suffering, the fear, the concerns that I have for my children, that I have for my marriage? that I have for being able to make ends meet, can we begin by seeing that Jesus hears of a need and he enters in? If you are a Christian here this morning, he has entered in. Our greatest fear that he's sort of sitting on the sideline with his arms crossed saying, man, when you get your act together, I'll get in the game. But until you get it figured out, until you fix your marriage, until you get a job, until you get rid of all your addictions, until you get clean, until you sort of read your Bible enough... You know, all I can do is wait for you. Jesus hears of a friend in need, and he enters in. Jesus goes to your place of suffering and danger because he cares about you by name. Think about if that really grips us, if that really gets a hold of our heart, if that begins to be drilled down deep into our identity, guess how that changes our relationship to people in your family, in this church, and in this community. If you believe that Jesus has actually entered into the suffering and the sadness of what's going on in your life, doesn't that open us up to dropping everything, to changing our schedule, doing a U-turn, and going back and helping those in need? Whatever it is, it could be a financial need. It could be that somebody just needs you to sit on their couch and just listen and nod your head. Not fix them, not give Bible verses. Those are all good things. Bible verses are good. But actually to sit there and listen 
and enter into what they're going through. I think that changes things. I mean, how many of us can think, those of you that have children, when you, when you have a child that's crying in the middle of the night, what do you do, mothers, fathers? You drop everything and you go to that child. Imagine the, the soldier that has been wounded in battle and he's crying out for help. He's crying to be rescued. What happens when someone from his group hears that cry, he goes back into battle, and he enters in. Do you see that Jesus has entered in? Not only to the life of Lazarus, but with our suffering and our difficulties as well. But I also want us to see another thing about how Jesus faces suffering. He doesn't just enter in. That's wonderful. But he also responds to suffering. While he has entered in, Now he responds to suffering. What's interesting about this passage is that Jesus enters into suffering in two different ways. As Mary and Martha both say the same thing. They say, Jesus, if you would have been here, my brother would not be dead. If you would have been here. We could have avoided all of this suffering. What's very interesting is that Jesus responds to each woman in a different way. I think that's instructive for us as we think about Jesus entering into our suffering and us entering into the lives of other people. Well, how does Jesus enter in? The first way that he enters in and he responds to suffering is by responding with his words. Jesus responds to suffering toward Martha with his words. Later, he will respond to Mary with his weeping. But I think what's interesting about this passage is that in life, it seems like we fall into one of two camps. Some of us are highly compassionate, we're empathetic, we're feelers. We wear a heart on our sleeve. It just comes natural that when somebody's hurting, we go to them. But opening our mouths and talking or being, uh, you know, or or, or anything like that, that, that's not, that comes less natural to us. Others of us, I'm in the second category, are fixers. When I see a problem, when there's something that needs to happen with my children or in my marriage, I want to fix the problem. And what's very interesting is that Jesus is not a fixer and he's not a feeler. Jesus is full of grace and truth. He goes to people in need. He is there. He's compassionate. And he also gives words of truth. So I want us to see the first way that Jesus responds with his words. He tells Martha in verses 25 through 27, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Listen to what he says earlier in in verse 22. He says, But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Notice Martha's faith there. And Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. The whole concept of resurrection in the ancient time was not a bodily resurrection in the middle of history. It's very easy for us to read that into the Bible because now we understand. 
But if you were there in the narrative, you would have had no category for Jesus saying, I'm the resurrection now. Because there was a resurrection that was to come in the future. And so Martha gives the right theological answer, like so many of us. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. The resurrection is not some distant event way off in the future. It's found in a person. Do you see, friends, if you're not a Christian and you're here this morning or you're curious, do you see the exclusive claims that Jesus is making with his words? He is saying that true life is found in him. That he has power over life and death. And then he actually backs that up with his actions here in a few verses later. Look at one of these verses here. I believe it's verse 27. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Notice, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus is constantly pressing them and pressing us, do you believe this? It's not enough for you to be impressed by Jesus being an ethical teacher or to be impressed by his power over life and death. Do you believe he's God in the flesh? Do you believe that he is God in the flesh, tabernacling with us? See, Jesus is saying that death will not have the final word. The resurrection is not some distant concept, but found in a person. Now think about what you're going through this morning. Suffering, uncertainty is all around us. Will your kids grow up and be Christians? Will you be able to pay your rent next month? Will your loved one be cured of cancer? Will you survive that surgery coming up soon? Will your marriage ever thrive, or is it merely going to be in survival mode? Aren't these real questions that all of us struggle with? Suffering is looming all around us. Uncertainty is looming all around us. And I think that one of the things that we struggle with is that we want to avoid it. We want to avoid death. We want to avoid suffering. And we avoid it in a few ways. Some of us avoid death and suffering by denying it. We act like, you know, we're in this car on a mountain road. And we're driving. And the road is turning to the left. But we're just going to keep on going straight. We act like the cliff is not there. We just deny it. I particularly see this with young people. If you're in high school, if you're in college, if you're recently a graduate, you just deny that you could, you could die tomorrow. Every single one of our days are numbered. The youthfulness of our culture is that the future is ahead of me. It's wide open. The world is mine. I think this is a veiled way of actually denying the reality of death and suffering. And it blinds us from appreciating and understanding the gospel. And it blinds us from being able to enter into people's suffering today. Here's another way that we do it. We also sentimentalize this. We sentimentalize death because we think about life as a Hallmark card. Or death as a Hallmark card. Death is a fact of life. Death is just the way it is. And it's our way of avoiding having to cry about it. It's our way of having to avoid scratching our head. It's our way of having to avoid being angry about death, the great intruder. 
So if we can just sort of sentimentalize it, like a, like a program on, on, on the Lifetime Network, then somehow we can avoid it. But I think the big one that, that we all struggle with is we avoid death by numbing ourselves. We numb ourselves. For some of you, it's overstudying. The reason why you're obsessed with your grades is because you can't deal with the brokenness around you and you want to have control. And you're, you know that you don't have control, but you're numbing yourself. It's overworking. Guys, gals, those of you that are business owners or your doctors or physicians or lawyers, and you overwork because you are hiding. You're hiding from the uncertainty of a broken and fragile world, and you're being blinded from actually entering into the suffering and the uncertainty of this world that Jesus might meet you there. Overstudying, overworking, overhobbying. Those of you that are obsessed with golf or travel or being at your lake house all the time, could it be that you, you could be hiding as well? Overeating, overdrinking, overachieving. All of the places that we hide and we numb ourselves. It's our heroin, I guess you could say, to take the edge off. Because the suffering that looms right outside those doors, the suffering that is inside of all of our hearts can be too much to bear. And yet we actually miss the gospel when we do that. See, Jesus responds with his words. And Jesus wants us to see that death is coming, but death is not the final word for those who are in Jesus Christ. You are not defined by your past. You are not defined by your past suffering. You are defined by Jesus' past. You are defined by Jesus' present reigning. You are defined by Jesus' future rule of the new heavens and new earth. We need Jesus to respond with his words. We also need him to respond with his weeping. Look at verses 33 through 35. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. In the West, in the West, we aren't very good at weeping at all. In most countries, people are weeping in the face of death. I don't know how many of you have seen the the newscast of the religious persecution that's going on in the Middle East right now. When they show the video footage of the loved ones who find out that their children, their husbands, their wives were brutally murdered for their faith, their response is always the same. They hit the deck and they are weeping uncontrollably. And so I think that in the West, as, as those that are, that's the culture that we live in, the idea of Jesus weeping sort of washes right off of us. It's sort of, it's like water off of a duck's back. We don't really know what to do with that. And I think that's a cultural blind spot for us, if I could be so honest. We miss this. Because God in the flesh is weeping over the death of one that he loves. Let me say that again. God in the flesh is weeping over the one that he loves. How does that affect you in the face of your suffering this morning? That Jesus weeps with you by his Spirit. That the body of Christ, the hands and feet of Jesus are here around you right now. The church. With their arms around you. You are not alone in your struggle. 
You are not alone in the difficulties that you're facing. The same God who has the words of comfort for Martha also has comfort for us with his weeping. Do you need to hear that this morning? My heart needs to hear that. I've only wept one time in my life. And that's my problem. One of my closest friends in college, we honestly thought he was going to run for president. He lived next to me in the fraternity house. We spent a lot of time together. We used to go snow skiing over spring break at his parents' place in Colorado. Many, many fond memories. But something changed in my friend. He was snowboarding And he had a massive fall, and he had a massive head injury. And needless to say, his personality changed. He was never the same. My friend began to sink into a deep chasm of depression, into um, he was not himself. And while the church was around him, the hands and feet of Christ, he met with elders, he was loved on. His wife tried to be an encouragement. They just had their baby. Jeff got to a place where he could not see the light, and he took his own life. And all of us were shocked. The last person that you would ever think. The great intruder, death, has entered into our friend group. The last person to hang himself. But that's what happened. And I remember speaking on the resurrection at his funeral in Birmingham, Alabama, and being able to get through it and preaching the gospel. And then we go to the graveside, and we lay him in the tomb, and we cover him. And as people are beginning to walk away, back to their cars, all I could do was weep. He's gone. Death has intruded. And thankfully, we grieve and we weep with hope that that Jeff knew Jesus, that I will see him once again in glory. But I tell you that illustration for this reason, not to brag on the fact that I wept because I'm hardly the, the great example of that. I tell you that example because I was marked on that day in Birmingham, Alabama. I, I bore a scar that one of my loved ones, one of the ones that I cared about deeply was taken And now I have been changed so that when students are in a deep place of depression and talking about dark things, friends are talking about dark things, I can enter in in a way that I could never enter in before. Who are the people around you that God has providentially put and he doesn't want you to fix them? He doesn't want you to give them Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28 is great, by the way. There's a right time and a place for that. But if you're not careful, if you give Romans 8, 28 to someone, it will come across as being trite. It will come across as you wanting to fix them. It will come across as you you don't want to enter the awkwardness of her crying, of him crying. Men, what would it look like for people in your office or people in your community group or people in your family who are going through a difficult time for you to put your arm around them and weep? Well, Justin, I'm a man. I don't do that kind of stuff. Jesus did. Would you say that Jesus is a man? Jesus was the man's man. Jesus responds to suffering with words of comfort. He responds to suffering with his weeping as well. 
There's an interesting quote that I have on your bulletin that talks about the importance of weeping. Chuck DeGroat, the Christian counselor, says this, In other words, I long secretly to know the ancient art of crying our prayers before a God who doesn't offer fast food fixes or purpose-driven principles, but who enters my pain in order to know me, and I Him. That sounds like biblical faith. And more and more, I'm convinced it is. Amen to that. See, Jesus doesn't just enter in, He responds. But lastly... He conquers. Jesus conquers suffering. Look at verses 33 and 38. You'll see a common phrase. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was what? Deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Verse 38. Then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. This English translation that we have deeply moved in spirit doesn't quite capture the guts and the raw power of what Jesus is saying here. The the word that's used here is usually used in the context of describing a wild animal. Imagine going on a hike or going, going camping and you come across a grizzly bear. What kind of sound is that grizzly bear going to make? He is going to roar. He is going to snort. He is going to growl. I want you to imagine the next day you find there's a mountain lion, a cougar, and he is growling. That is the connotation of what Jesus says here, or this this idea of being deeply moved in his spirit. He is, in a word, angry. How does that sit with you that God in the flesh is angry? He is angry. What what, what would it be angry about? He's angry about a couple of things. He's angry at losing his friend. He's not only fully God, he's also fully man, right? He's not half God and half man. He's fully God and fully man. He is the man's man. He is fully God in the flesh. But he's not just angry at losing a friend. You know why he's really angry? He's angry at the great intruder of his creation, death. His creation. He was there at creation in Genesis 1. And death is not the fact of life. Jesus is angry at the devastation of suffering and sin and death. He's angry at the devastation of refugee children in Greece. He's angry about marriages falling apart in America. He's angry at the brokenness of our world. He's angry at the poverty of Athens. He's angry about the self-righteousness that characterizes so many of our hearts. He hates it. He hates it. He hates it so much, friends, do you know what he does? He does something about it. He recognizes that if human suffering is to be conquered, and it must, Jesus must experience that human suffering as well, as a man, as a human being, that Jesus recognizes that if Lazarus is ever going to come forward out of that tomb, Jesus must enter the tomb. There would be an even greater resurrection than this that he would perform. You see, for Jesus to change the mourning into dancing, 
He would need to face suffering and death head on. And is this not the gospel? You see, just a short time later, Jesus will enter into our suffering on the cross of Calvary. The Father willingly gives His Son. Jesus willingly goes and enters the most tragic human suffering, not begrudgingly, but for us, for His enemies. He allows Himself to suffer a brutal death on the cross, the crucifixion, not merely to be some example, but to actually rescue us to renew us, to restore us, that He might begin a worldwide cosmic renewal of all things that we call new creation. So that when Jesus came out of that tomb, new creation is starting, the second Adam. And this new creation will continue. The kingdom of God will advance in Athens and beyond until Jesus returns in glory. Did you know that Jesus allowed suffering to crush Him? So that suffering would never crush you. Jesus allowed himself to be broken so that suffering would not break you. Jesus allowed himself to taste death so that death would not ultimately consume us. See, Jesus conquered death, he conquered suffering when he came forth from that tomb in glory. And if he has this kind of power, he has all authority in every single one of our lives. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you're like, Justin, I'm curious about Christianity, but I have intellectual problems with the Bible. What do you do with Leviticus? What do you do with um, Joshua and the conquest? Or some of you say, you know, Justin, I have um, ethical questions about the Bible, Uh, I struggle with the idea that the the Bible um, forbids homosexuality. I I struggle with the idea, it it appears that the Bible is is regressive toward women. So therefore, I don't want to follow Jesus. And you have all of your intellectual questions. Why would a good God allow suffering? These are great questions to have. I would invite you to continue to wrestle with them. Maybe even talk with some of the elders here at Redeemer. But here's the question that I think you're really avoiding. Did Jesus Christ rise from the dead miraculously? That's the one that you got to wrestle with, friends. If he didn't come back from the dead, it was all a hoax and an elaborate scheme because the disciples really like Jesus and they want to build this worldwide empire. If he didn't really happen, who cares about Jesus' opinion about sexuality and ethics and politics and you name it? Who cares? Just go do whatever you want to do. But, and I say but, if the resurrection really did happen and that Jesus conquered death, he came back from the grave, he appeared to hundreds of eyewitnesses, then he has everything to say about our sexuality. He has everything to say about how you spend your money. He has everything to say about how you treat your wives. He has everything to say about how you treat your husbands, how you treat your children, because your life and my life is not ours anymore. Everything goes back to the resurrection, friends. I recently read an article a couple of uh, days ago on the martial art judo. Judo is called the gentle way. You know why they call it the gentle way? I assure you there's nothing gentle about being tossed on the ground and held in submission. But they call it the gentle way because in comparison to the other martial arts, 
what you actually do is you wait for your opponent to throw a punch. And what do you do? You receive the punch, and you use that punch against them. In judo, you receive the kick, and you take the kick, and you use the aggression of the opponent against them to defeat them. I don't know if this has ever been done before. That's the gospel. <laughs> Let's close in prayer. I'm just kidding. Here's why it's the gospel. Jesus uses what he hates to bring about what he loves. He uses the aggression and the offense of death and suffering and takes it on himself, receives it, and then turns it back and defeats it. That is the gospel. You are not defined by your struggles. You are not defined by your addictions. You are defined by the work of Jesus. See, there is an invitation for all of us. I write to you that you might believe The question for all of us is on the table. Do you believe, Martha? Do you believe, Mary? Yes, I do. Do you believe this morning? Are you one step closer to believing, you know what, the resurrection might have actually happened? Who are the people right now that you know the Holy Spirit is impressing upon you? You have been avoiding like the plague because you don't want to get messy. You don't want to blow up your calendar. You don't want to blow up your schedule. And that you know now because Jesus blew up his schedule for you, how can you not enter in? That will change this city. Redeemer will be turned upside down when our hearts begin to be gripped by this reality that Jesus entered into our suffering. He responded to our suffering. He conquered our suffering. Let's pray.